Well, good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to be reading the whole of chapter 9. And if you become weary of a long reading of Scripture, just be reminded as we go through Nehemiah 9, they stood for a quarter of a day and listened to the book of the law read. So we're not, we're not going to get quite to a quarter of a day uh, in this reading. So uh, just be encouraged uh, that as we uh, come to God's word, that it is, uh, it is life-giving and, uh, and encouraging to us. So now as I was preparing my sermon for this week, uh, I found myself reflecting upon the ministry of John the Baptist. As many of you know, John was sent ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ to prepare the people for the ministry of Jesus. He was the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah's words. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. And the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, it was John's calling to lay the foundation for the revelation of the glory of God that would come in the person of Christ Jesus. That is, he was to prepare the soil so that when the seed of the gospel was sown, it would find a fruitful place to grow. Now, our study of the book of Nehemiah has focused on this question of rebuilding the kingdom, asking how we might see the kingdom of God grow and flourish in our generation, asking how we might experience spiritual vitality in our hearts and homes and church community and beyond, asking how we might be faithful to prepare the way for the Lord to come and the glory of God to be revealed. One of the words that we use to describe such spiritual vitality is revival. Another is an awakening. It's so very easy for us to become stale and complacent in our spiritual lives. We go through the motions. It's so easy for us to feel as though we are just sleepwalking through life and nothing of power or life-changing magnitude is occurring. And yet there are times... There are seasons in which the Lord awakens His people. There are moments in the history of His church when His glory is revealed in a unique and powerful manner and the church grows in holiness and in spiritual maturity and numerically through conversions. And John was sent ahead to prepare the way for the Lord. So what was his message? Well, his call was to lay this foundation. But what was the foundation for widespread spiritual vitality? Well, we have a summary of his message in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, we read this summary. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, we read, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And in the Gospel of Luke, John proclaims, 
bear fruits in keeping with repentance. As we come to our passage for this morning, we remember that God's people have been reestablished in Jerusalem following the exile in Babylon. Ezra has led the people in rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah has led the people in the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. But now they must engage in the most important work of the kingdom, the rebuilding of the people. For a generation, God's people have dwelt in a foreign land, a pagan land. And they have been indoctrinated into false and worldly beliefs and practices and habits And they need to be built up yet again into a community of spiritual vitality and health following the patterns of life that God's law lays out for his people. And what is the foundation of this rebuilding? How will the people of Israel be reformed and revived? Well, what we'll see in our text is that God's people are called to prepare the way for spiritual growth and revival by laying a foundation of biblical and prayerful repentance. So here now, the word of the Lord, Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Benai, Cadmiel, Shabaniah, Benu, Sherebiah, Benai, and Keniah. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Heshbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. 
You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities in a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. 
Our kings, our princes, our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you now in this time and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would lead us and guide us by your word and spirit. That as the light of your word shines forth, we may see true light. And in your truth, may we find freedom. And in your will that is given to us in your word, discover your peace. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we transition from chapter 8 of Nehemiah to chapter 9, we see that the people have gathered together now for the specific purpose of repentance. Last week, as they heard the word of the Lord read, they began to weep. They began this repentance, and yet they were encouraged by the Levites that this was not the proper time to weep because they had gathered together to celebrate a feast. It was a time for rejoicing and eating and drinking. But now in chapter 9, the time for repentance has come. We see this intention towards repentance in verses 1 through 2. If you look there, it says, Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. You see, there are times and there are seasons in which it is appropriate to rejoice. And there are times when it is appropriate to lament. Christmas and Easter are not the proper times to engage in lament. We do not think that it would be proper if on Christmas Eve we got together and instead of rejoicing and singing praise to the Lord for sending His Son, we came in sackcloth and ashes and lamented before the Lord. Or if on Christmas morning we said, we're not going to give gifts this morning, we're just going to lament of our sin. That would not be proper. And yet, there are times of lament. There are times in which it is proper to gather together as the people of God with fasting and with confession of our sin. And this is one of the reasons that we have a monthly day of prayer and fasting. The first Tuesday of each month, we gather together like we did this month. And we fasted and we prayed on behalf of the unborn. 
Because we know that this world still is laboring under the brokenness of sin. And there are times for us to lament. And so the people gather together now in this time. So how do the people engage in this repentance? Well, we see that they gather with this purpose of lament and then they spend a significant time in God's word. Look at the first half of verse three. We read this. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. A quarter of the day means something around three hours. For three hours, they heard the word of the Lord read and explained to them. And then in the second half of verse three, we read for another quarter of it, they made confession and worship the Lord, their God. They read the word of God. They confessed their sin and they worshiped their God. And this is the pattern that we see that will shape their prayers of repentance. And this is the pattern that we will see reflected in the rest of Nehemiah chapter 9. For the rest of the chapter is a prayer of repentance that teaches us how we might faithfully engage in biblical and prayerful repentance that brings vitality. The first thing that we see is that if we would engage in such biblical and prayerful repentance, we must rehearse God's initiating grace. We would need a quarter of a day for me to go through each and every detail of the prayer that is outlined here in Nehemiah chapter 9. And so rather than doing that, we're going to look at this pattern that we see displayed throughout this prayer. And the first thing that we see is that as... They go through the history of God's people and God's dealing with the people of Israel. They see that God continually enters relationship with his people through grace. In verse 7, we read, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. In verse 9, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. In verse 22, we read, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. That's every corner of Canaan. And then in verse 25, we read that they took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. You see, God chose Abraham. And he entered into a covenant with him, promising that he would be his God and that they would be his people. God saw the people of Israel when they were in distress in Egypt and he came and he saved them and he delivered them from the Egyptians. The Lord saw that his people needed a land in which they could dwell. And so he gave to them the land in Canaan in which they received homes that they did not build, wells that they did not dig, vineyards that they had not planted, orchards that they had not taken care of. They did nothing to produce any of this. And yet the Lord in his grace gave them these things. At every major turning point in the history of God's people, we see that God initiates a gracious relationship in which he gives to his people blessings 
that they have not earned. He pursues his people for the purpose of blessing them. And this truth is what we see reflected in the Apostle Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. When he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. You see, we do nothing to initiate this gracious relationship that we have with God. Rather, He is the one who pursues us. He finds us. He saves us. And He brings us into a covenant relationship with Himself in which He is our God and we are His people. His choosing of a people is completely the result of His own gracious love. And it's not conditioned upon anything that we have done. This electing love is the testimony of God's Word. Abraham was chosen by grace. The Hebrews were saved from their slavery in Egypt by the grace of God that was demonstrated in the sacrifice of the lamb that covered them in which the the wrath of God passed over them. This grace of God is displayed that Israel was given the promised land of Canaan, not something that they produced, but something that God gave to them. And as we move forward in redemptive history, we see That is by grace alone that we are chosen and saved and given an inheritance. For the word of God says that we have been chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world. It says that we have been saved from our slavery to sin by the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God. And the word of God teaches us that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for an inheritance in the world that is to come. And therefore, our prayers of repentance must be shaped by the truth of God's initiating grace. We must rehearse this truth repeatedly in prayer, reminding ourselves that it is not us, but it is God who has chosen us. It is God who begins this relationship. And therefore, we can come to Him in humility and in weakness, realizing that all He requires of us is the faith to receive Him. And even that faith He gives to us by grace. You see, we do not earn our relationship with God. Therefore, we are free to be honest about who we are and to confess our sin before Him. And if that were the end of the story, That would be wonderful. God chooses us by His grace to enjoy the blessing of salvation and everlasting life in Christ Jesus. And then we ride off into the sunset. But the history of God's people tells a much different story. And that's the next thing that we see in this pattern of prayer that's laid out for us in our text. That to engage in biblical and prayerful repentance, we must confess our habitual sin. You see, God, by His grace, begins this relationship. However, His people continually rebel against His gracious love. In verses 9 through 15, we read of how the Lord preserved and protected the people of Israel as they fled from Egypt and dwelt in the wilderness for 40 years. But in verse 16, we read their response to God's grace. It says, But they 
And our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey. In verses 22 through 25, we read how the Lord gave to the people of Israel the land of Canaan. How he fought on their behalf and graciously provided them this land. But in then verse 26, we read their response to God's grace. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemy. And then in verse 32 and following this prayer turns to their current situation. And they call out in verses 34 through 35, our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you have set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. You see, Our prayers of repentance must confess our habitual rejection of God and His law. We must be struck by the reality that there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one is without sin. And that includes every single one of us. But we live in a world where sin is not acknowledged for what it truly is. And therefore, our confession of sin rarely is heartfelt and sincere because we do not understand the true nature of sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as any want of conformity unto our transgression of the law of God. You see, sin is defined in its relationship to God and His Word. There is an objective Law by which we come to understand what is a transgression or what is a sin. However, our culture teaches us to think of sin not as something that is an objective breaking of a external law, but rather sin is something that makes us feel bad or ashamed. We think of sin as a psychological problem in which we feel guilty for doing or not doing what we deem to be correct. Sin is defined by our feelings and not by God's word. And so when there's a call for repentance, so often we don't even know what to repent of. We think, I've done a rather good job of avoiding bad things. I'm a nice person. I let people go ahead of me in line at the grocery store. I'm true to myself. I have no real deep sense of why I should repent. Or on the other hand, you feel a deep sense of guilt. And you always are walking under this guilt. But it's, be, but it's not rooted in some breaking of God's law. But it's rooted in some sense of feeling that is just merely psychological. That you have not obeyed the law that you have created for yourself. And therefore, we have no real idea why the Apostle Paul would tell us the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You see, sin is a rejection of the objective word of God. 
And if we would truly repent, we must see that just as those who have gone before us, we continually rebel against God's word. We need only turn to the Ten Commandments that the law that the Lord has given to us a summary of his law to see how often that we have served other gods in our lives, how often we have sought to worship the Lord, not according to his word, but according to our own will, how often we have taken his name in vain, how often we have not remembered and hallowed the Sabbath day. How often we have not honored those authorities that God has put into our lives, whether it be our parents or the governmental authorities that are over us. How often we have spoken hurtful words about our neighbor or have looked with lust upon others, especially electronically. How we have taken what is not ours. How we have lied to make our own name look good. How we have often been jealous for what others have and coveted and not been content with what God has given to us. You see, there will be no spiritual vitality and growth in your life or in the life of the church until our prayers are infused with true repentance with confession of the ways that we have broken God's law. Because repentance is the pruning that must occur for us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is how the way of the Lord is prepared for revival and awakening. We must rehearse God's initiating grace. We must confess our habitual sin. And the third element of biblical and prayerful repentance is that we must trust in God's covenant mercy. You see, God blesses His people. His people rebel against His grace. And then God shows mercy to His people. This is the pattern that we see throughout the history of Israel and the church. Look down, beginning in the middle of verse 17. We read of the Lord's response to the rebellion of Israel in the wilderness. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. In verse 31, we read of God's mercy to Israel following their rebellion in the land of Canaan. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. To show mercy is to withhold a punishment from somebody that they deserve. It's to not give someone the punishment that they have earned. And the people of Israel deserve to be destroyed. They had received God's blessing by grace and they had rejected them. God should have cast them aside. God had every right to cast them aside, but He is a God of mercy and of love and of kindness, and He is ready to forgive us. Throughout Scripture, the metaphor that is used 
is one of a spouse who makes a vow of fidelity and yet then commits adultery. That the people of Israel have come into a covenant relationship with their Lord and yet they have turned from their Lord. But God is like a forgiving husband who pursues his bride even in her infidelity. And he forgives her and cleanses her from her lewdness and immorality. This is what Paul means in Ephesians 5 when he writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Oh, Christian, if we would experience a true awakening, a true revival in our generation, then we must be a people who trust in the mercy of God in Christ Jesus to wash us and to cleanse us from our sin. To take seriously the words of Scripture that says God is ready to forgive. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yes, we should have been crushed. Yes, we should have been cast aside. He showed His mercy over and over and over again. And we have turned from Him over and over and over again. And yet, He loves us. And He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us that we might be washed and that He might have a bride that is pure and spotless and holy. You see, the mercy of God is not merely that He overlooks our sin, that He sweeps it under the carpet, as it were. Rather, His mercy is displayed in the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, who took upon Himself our guilt. And paid the penalty for our rebellion. God's mercy is that we do not receive the punishment we deserve. Rather, that His Son, Jesus Christ, received the punishment that we deserve. And it is trust in this covenant mercy of God that is the foundation of spiritual life and vitality. That is, if we would have revival and awakening in our own hearts and in our church and in the community beyond. We must trust God to come to us in our filth as foremost of sinners and that He will embrace us and wash us by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, it's not uncommon to hear Christians pining for a time of revival, a hope for a reawakening of Christian values and practice in our churches and the culture at large, a time when many come to faith and are deepened in their faith. And this hope is not far-fetched or unprecedented. Throughout the history of the church, the Lord has been gracious to pour out a spirit of revival Upon his church in periods of deep spiritual darkness, God has consistently set forth his light and reawakened his church. We have seen revival occur during the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. In the early 18th century, the church experienced the first great awakening under the ministry of such men as John Wesley and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. 
In the 19th century, the Second Great Awakening swept across the United States, bringing many to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the early 20th century, the Lord blessed the Welsh church with a great revival that began in Wales and spread throughout the United Kingdom and then throughout Europe and even to the ends of the earth. And a similar movement of God's grace has occurred over the past several decades. And currently we wait, we hope, and we pray that the Lord will again stir a great revival, a great awakening in our generation. But we wait and we hope and we pray in vain if we do not begin with repentance. Because this is how the Lord begins such movements of grace. And the evangelical church has gotten this wrong so often because we think that we can stir up revival by entertaining really well. We think that we can stir up revival by having really attractive programs. We think that we can stir up revival if we get people's emotions heightened to the place of a frothing foam in which they will then turn to the Lord and there'll be great revival because they're so excited about what God is going to do through them. But this is a false path. Revival does not begin when we get super excited. Revival begins when we begin to repent of our sin according to God's word. And that is when God will send forth revival. Because if we are looking to the power of man, then all we will produce is a bunch of smoke and no true fire from God. From Abraham to Moses to David to Nehemiah to John the Baptist, God prepares the foundation for His coming glory through the repentance of His people. And therefore, we must be a people if we desire true Revival and awakening in our own hearts and homes and communities who begin with true heartfelt repentance. In Second Chronicles 7, we hear again these familiar words. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Oh, people of God, will you not hear the call of God's word and go to the Lord in repentance, trusting in his merciful grace that he will heal us, his people. For if we would see spiritual vitality in our generation, in our church, in our community, in our nation, then we must be a people who begin with biblical and prayerful repentance. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come to you in this time, Lord, and we believe your word that is so unbelievable that despite our sin, that you have pursued us and that you have given to us your son, Jesus Christ, that in him we might have all things. 
Oh, would you give to us a spirit of repentance? That you would prune away those dead branches in our lives that are producing no fruit. That we, O oh Lord, might be pruned and shaped towards bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So that we might see in our generation a great revival, the coming of your glory. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.